Our text this morning is Psalm 4. We'll continue our sermon series on the Psalms this morning as we look at Psalm 4. The Word of the Lord. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for Himself. The Lord hears when I call to Him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Let us pray. Our Father, we pray that you would open our hearts to receive the implanted word this morning, which is able to save our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. When you are fed up with the Christian life, what do you need more than anything else? When life in this fallen world, which consists of death, bereavement, relationship struggles, money problems, sin struggles, when you're at your breaking point in dealing with this fallen world, what do you need more than anything else? Moses once reached that point. Moses grew up in Pharaoh's household only only to be driven out from a life of luxury into a life of sheep farming in Midian. But Moses adapted, and after 40 years in Midian, Moses had apparently found contentment in his life as a sheep farmer. So when God showed up in the burning bush and instructed Moses to go back to Egypt and to lead God's people out of slavery, you can understand why Moses was reluctant. I'm just fine out here farming my sheep. I'm 80 years old. Go find somebody else, please. No, Moses, it's you. I have appointed you for this task. So at 80 years old, Moses was commissioned by God to lead a nation of multiple millions through a desert for 40 years. Many of you want to spend your remaining years just in peace, do you not? Moses' life radically ramped up at 80 years old. And he was given the enormous burden of leading God's chosen people. At 80 years old, 
most of us are or will be if we're given the grace to live that long, we'll be considering slowing down. Moses was told, speed up. And once Moses finally led the people out of Egypt, and once they crossed the Red Sea, the very next incidents recorded in Exodus are of Israel grumbling against God and against Moses. If you've ever been in any type of leadership position, you know what a toll it can take on you to lead people who constantly question your leadership, they constantly grumble about the decisions that you have made. Moses had become the pastor of the largest megachurch ever. Everybody was questioning him, criticizing him, cursing him. It took Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, to exhort Moses. Moses, you shouldn't be sitting there all day deciding all the disputes among the people. Remember, Moses was just, he was sitting there and people would bring their cases and grievances that they had against one another and they would come to Moses and he sat there all day making judgments. And so Jethro says, you need some help. And I have to believe that Moses is hearing disputes and he's deciding cases like, well, you know, my next door neighbor here, Moses, you know his oxen keep getting out and messing up my lawn. Or Moses, do you know how she looked at me? And, you know, Moses has just got to be. And then to top it all off, Moses had to go before God and intercede for these people. They've been criticizing him, cursing him, and yet it's his job to go before God and pray for them and beg for mercy on their behalf. In Exodus 32, the people ran off to idols as Moses was on the mountain receiving the law of God. They broke every single commandment imaginable and justly incurred the wrath of God. So God told Moses, Moses, these aren't my people, these are your people. I'm not going up with them to the promised land. I might consume them in my wrath if I go with them. Yet all these people who grumbled against Moses in every possible way, Moses went before God and begged for mercy on their behalf. He was in an impossible situation. So when we finally get to Exodus 33 in the story of Moses, it is clear Moses is exhausted with the whole situation. He's finally reached his breaking point. What does Moses need in that moment? Exodus 33:18 God please show me your glory. And God says, Moses, you can't see my face in all its unshielded glory, you'll die. Yet I will pass before you and I will allow you to look at my backside so that you may see something of my shining glory. And when the time comes for God to show His glory to Moses, what does God do? He passes before Moses and proclaims His name. The Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. And at this proclamation of God's own name and at the revealing of His own glory, Moses immediately bows down to worship. What do you need? when you are at the end of your rope. You need the covenant God to shine His face on you. You need to see something of the glory of God. You need God. 
This is why the ironic blessing in number 6 is of unspeakable glory to God's covenant people. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons saying, Thus shall you bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift His countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put My name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. As a member of God's covenant family, when you are at the end of your rope, you need the blessings of the covenant. You need God to shine upon you. You need His name put upon you. That's the essence of Psalm 4 this morning. We don't know exactly when in the life of David he wrote this psalm, but clearly it was written at a time when David was suffering from oppression from those who were not following God. Some have said this psalm may be a continuation of Psalm 3, which we looked at last week. Whatever the situation, this is a psalm where David cries out to God for relief. And this prayer climaxes with the exclamation of what David needs more than anything else. It's in verse 6, Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Three points for this morning as we go through this psalm. Verses 1 through 3, we have the prayer for relief. Verses 4 and 5, the waiting for relief. And verses 6 through 8, the joy of the relieving God. The joy of the relieving God. Verses 1 through 3, let's look at this. The prayer for relief. The beginning of this psalm is the instruction to the so-called choir master. Whatever that means, it's the best translation of the Hebrew that we probably have for this word. And we are to sing this psalm with stringed instruments. This is a psalm that is supposed to be used in the public worship of God. Verse 1 does not begin the way that we often begin prayers. We often begin prayers with our gracious Heavenly Father, you know. Even Jesus taught us to preach, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. But David bypasses those usual pleasantries and gets right to an outburst of emotion, doesn't he? Answer me. That's how he begins his prayer. Answer me. This prayer is a prayer for relief from persecutors that we see here in verse 2. Whatever particular circumstance gave rise to David writing this psalm, we know David was enduring persecution in some fashion from men who did not seek after God. These were men who mocked David, and they did not love truth. Thus, these men present a contrast with who David is. David is in covenant with a God who justifies him. Answer me, O God of my righteousness. That's justification. The men of verse 2 are unbelievers. David acknowledges that God has relieved him in past times, and now he calls on God to be gracious to him and hear his prayer yet again. And so David takes to the bank the promises of verse 3. The Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. David has a right to cry out to God for relief, and that right is founded upon two things here in verse 3. One, God's righteousness, verse 1, and two, God's election, verse 3. Those who oppose David are opposing God. Notice, 
also, David's knowledge of his status as God's child does not lead him to refrain from praying. David doesn't sit back and say, well, I'm God's child and God is my righteousness, therefore I don't need to pray because God will take care of me. No, it's the very fact that he's God's child which leads him to call out to God in this absolutely exasperated manner. He knows God will hear him and answer him and relieve him. This is the boy who is playing with the other kids on the playground during recess, and he gets bullied for some reason or another. When the boy comes running home to his mother, calling out for help with tears streaming down his face, is he calling out to his mother out of some sort of fear that she won't comfort him? Of course not. He knows where to go when he's been bullied by those who oppose him. It's the hurt he has experienced which drives him to the mother he knows can help him. Verses 1 through 3 are the cry of the Christian running to his or her heavenly father and yelling, Father, help me, hear me, deliver me, rescue me. This prayer does not come from a heart of disbelief. Rather, it comes from a heart of belief that God will actually do something about it. Every single one of us has been in that place if you're not in that place right now. And if you don't know that place, if you don't know what it is to cry out to God as your father, you are not a Christian. Why? Because it is only by the Holy Spirit dwelling in you that you can cry out, Abba, Father, Romans 8.15. It is by the Holy Spirit we cry, Abba, Father. If you've never called out to the God of righteousness, the God of election, the God of adoption, your Father, if you've never called upon God as your Father, you are not a Christian. But for those of you who have longed for your heavenly Father to hear you and to answer you, take heart. You can claim this promise here in verse 3. Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for Himself. The Lord hears when I call to Him. When unbelievers oppose us, when the fallen world is against us, when our own sin breaks our own hearts, when Satan is opposing us, when we're at the end of our rope in exasperation, we call out to God for an answer and for relief. He hears and answers because we're His children. And you can bank on that promise, or we might as well just throw the Bible out. I can remember playing with the neighborhood kids when I was seven, eight, seven or eight years old and accidentally saying a bad word. And I ran inside crying to my mother. Remember this? I ran inside crying to my mother, confessing what I had done. When I came to her, did she tell me to wash my mouth out with soap before she would comfort me and embrace me? Of course not. We don't clean ourselves up before we come back to the Father. We come to Him with tears streaming down our face, and He takes us in. She embraced me because that's what mothers do. That's what good fathers do too. 
That's what our Father does. The Lord hears the screaming and the crying. The Lord sees the tears streaming down the faces, our faces, and He answers. Now, His answers hardly ever come when we want them or how we want them. He is God. We are not. We have to wait for answers and trust His answers. And verses 4 through 5 here contain instruction for how to wait on God in your exasperation. These two verses here, verses 4 and 5, are a contrast. Verse 4, don't do this while you wait on God. But verse 5, do do this while you wait on God. There are some commentators who interpret the commands of verses 4 and 5 as David speaking to his oppressors. In other words, they would say, uh, David is actually saying here, you men who love vain words, you men, you be angry and don't sin. You offer right sacrifices to God. In other words, some would say that these two verses are David instructing his opposers to repent. Now, as much as these ungodly men do need to repent, I don't think that's what the text is saying here. These two verses are better understood as David speaking to himself and to all godly people about how they should wait for God in the midst of their pain. And I say this for a few reasons. One, ungodly men, by definition, cannot offer right sacrifices. They can't. Second, the very natural reaction of those who persecute you, your very natural reaction is to be angry with them, is it not? David knows the human heart. And third, the most compelling evidence these verses are meant as instruction to believers is how Paul uses verse 4 in Ephesians chapter 4. Remember those statements in Ephesians chapter 4? Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Neither give the devil an opportunity. Paul uses verse 4 to give instructions to Christians in the New Testament. So, From that, I conclude verses 4 and 5 are meant to be instruction to believers on how to wait for God to answer. So, verse 4, while you're waiting, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. It is okay, I'll give you permission, it is okay to be angry while you are waiting on God. The sin David encourages believers to refrain from is returning to the ungodly what they have given us. We are not to respond in kind to their mocking and their lying about us. Furthermore, we are encouraged to not speak against God while we wait. We should ponder His ways as we go to sleep. In your suffering, you're perfectly free to be angry, not in an outburst of anger. That's condemned in Scripture. You can even, in a sense, be upset with God. What you may never do is put God in the wrong and attempt to justify yourself in the midst of your suffering. God, you are wrong to have allowed this to happen to me, and I am righteous in this situation, and therefore I have the moral high ground over you, God. You are never allowed to do that. That's sin. Ask Job how that attitude worked out for him. You get to the end of the book of Job, and God's judge shows up and says, Really, Job? Really? Are you going to put me in the wrong for what has happened to you? 
Who do you think you are? That's what you shouldn't do, verse 4. But on the flip side, what should you do? Verse 5, worship God while you wait on Him. Worship God while you wait on Him. Offer right sacrifices. In the Old Covenant, this verse has a ceremonial aspect to it. Obviously, in the New Covenant, we offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. There is a, there is a purifying aspect to worship of God in the midst of your suffering. Why is it when you're in suffering, many times what you want to, the impulse you have is, I want to go to church. It's because there's a purifying aspect to suffering. I mean, excuse me, to worship in your suffering. Because when you're really worshiping, you're forgetting about yourself. If you're not thinking about yourself, and instead of focusing your gaze on your Creator and Redeemer, you are able to, in a certain sense, even for a little time, escape from your suffering. This is beautifully illustrated in Psalm 73. We won't turn there, but if we ever make it to Psalm 73 in future years of this Psalm Sermon series, I shotgun Psalm 73. Uh, In Psalm 73, Asaph pours out his heart to God and he confesses to God that he had looked at his unbelieving neighbors and he saw how they prospered in life. And yet when he looked at his own life, he said to himself, Lord, people who persist in wickedness have an easy life, and those of us who seek your glory have it hard, and that's not fair. That doesn't make any sense if you're the God of the universe. And then the psalm goes on to say, Asaph saw the whole situation for what it was when? When I went to the sanctuary of God. When I went to worship, I understood what the end of the wicked is and what the end of the righteous is. The wicked inherit the wrath of God, the righteous inherit God Himself. It's through worship that Asaph was able to see the right perspective on his pain. So let's make this real practical. When you're at the end of your rope, worship publicly and privately. There's a reason Hebrews 10.25 tells us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the habit of some. But what? But encourage one another all the more. In other words, Christians, unless providentially hindered, should not be skipping church habitually. Why? Because when you're at the end of the rope, worship and encouragement is exactly what you need. Why would you rob yourself of the great blessings that are in worship, in suffering, when God has so designed the life of the church and public worship and public encourage of one another, when He's so designed it to be one of the ways in which He gives Himself to you in your pain? Why did Moses want to see God and worship in the midst of his suffering? Because he knew he needed it more than anything else. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord while you wait for Him to show up. So that brings us to verses 6 through 8. You can see how this leads to what David says in verses 6 through 8. There is joy to be found in God Himself in the midst of pain. Notice what I did not say. I did not say there is joy in relief from pain. I said there is joy to be found in God in the midst of pain. 
we have no indication in this psalm that there is a final resolution to David's plight. None. And that's a good thing, because pain doesn't work that way. Some of you have pain that you're simply going to take to the grave with you, and it's never going to be fully and finally relieved in this life. It's not relief from that pain that you ultimately need. You're going to get it once you're raised on the last day. But for now, that's not really what you ultimately need. For now, in His mercy, he may get, God may give you temporary relief, but relief is not what you ultimately need. In your pain, you need what Moses got on the mountain. You need the covenant promise of number six. You need the joy that comes from God shining His glorious face down upon you. So, verse 6, there are many will say, who say, who will show us some good? If you're reading the ESV, imagine the quotation mark comes after good. Those quotation marks are just a suggestion by the translators. I think it goes after good here. Who will show us some good? This is the cry of a struggling believer. Where am I going to find good in the midst of my pain? And it's like they yell out, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. This is the believer crying out for the experience of God's shining face. This is Moses at his breaking point. Show me your glory. This is the believer in pain. Who will help me? I have nowhere else to go. I need nothing else save God in all his glory and all his power and all his might and all his love to shine on me. And we're given the result of this experience in verse 7. It's as if David's able to say, because of the shining face, Uh, upon him of God, he's able to say, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. The unbelievers, the ungodly, they may mock and oppose God's people in their material prosperity. Their grain and wine may abound. But you, O Lord, have put more joy in my heart than whatever the unbeliever thinks that he can get from this world. Even in the midst of my pain, I have divine sovereign joy that you, God, put in my heart. I know your joy as I see you in all your glory when your glorious holy face shines on me. Therefore, verse 8, I can sleep at night because the Lord is my God and I am His child. Micaiah and I, along with Pastor Wilson, uh, heard John Piper preach on verses 6 and 7 of this psalm a couple of months ago. Although I think you were in the car and took off early, didn't you? Yeah, you did. Uh, You missed out. Uh, We heard John Piper preach on this psalm, verses 6 and 7 of this psalm a couple of months ago. And his basic thrust in the sermon was this. The fundamental difference between a believer and an unbeliever is not a decision of the will. That is not the fundamental difference between a believer and an unbeliever. The fundamental difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is verse 7. An unbeliever does not have the joy of verse 7. A Christian fundamentally no longer delights in the abundance of his grain and his wine because God has put a new joy in his heart. A Christian is a person who has joy and delight 
in the covenant God who shines His face in love upon the believer. The Christian is able to endure the suffering in a way that no unbeliever can because his or her ultimate joy is not in the world. It is in God Himself. The prayer of the Christian when suffering becomes, Oh God, let me know your number six covenant promises because there is joy in your shining face. More joy than anything that this world has to offer. For some of you, I don't understand why you think accumulation of earthly earthly comforts and luxuries is where you're going to find joy. It's nice. It's not where you're going to find joy. Because verse 7 says the exact opposite. If you want pure joy, forsake the world. And pray the prayer of verse 6. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. I want to close this morning by answering one final question about this psalm. How do Christian believers experience the shining face of God? How do we experience that? This is where we need to understand that good theology, good Bible doctrine, and practical Christianity are not opposed to one another. They are married to one another. How you come about practically experience the shining face of God is rooted in what you believe about Jesus Christ. When the New Testament speaks of the covenant blessings of God's shining face, you know what it does? It points to Jesus Christ as the one who reveals God's shining face. John 1, 16-18, From Christ's fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. Remember Moses? But you can't see my face and live. No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Jesus Christ is the revealer of the Father. He's the revealer of the shining face of the glory of God. John 14, 8-9, Philip said to Him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me, has seen the Father. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? In the face of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 3, 3, He, Jesus Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Do you want to experience the shining face of God? Go to Jesus Christ. You know, in a sense, and I don't mean to be overly simplistic about this, but in a sense, all all ministers of the gospel are doing is just saying, you got a problem? There's Jesus. Something going on? There's Jesus. Here He is. Go on. That's all we're doing. Because that's where the shining face of God is. That's where the covenant blessings are, in Christ. You're not going to Jesus Christ 
because you think you're going to get blessing from Jesus Christ. You're going to Jesus Christ because you want Jesus Christ. Go to Jesus Christ. Embrace Him by faith. If you're weary and heavy laden, He says, Come to Me and I will give you rest. All God's glory and all His power and all His might and all His love shine on us in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so grateful that you have sent Jesus Christ. That in the midst of our pain, when we are looking to you for relief and distress, that we can claim the covenant promises of your shining face in Christ. And we ask you, Father, that as we go through today, this week, that we would claim the promises because you are our Father and you love us. We thank you that you lift your countenance upon us. In Jesus' name, amen.